0: I want to thank you so much for coming, and we're honored to have Kuparari Maharaj here to give us a little speech on enlightenment. Jai Maharaj, thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me. It's mommy time? Four o'clock Swami time? <laughs> <laughs> mommy, it's mommy time, actually. <laughs> mommy time. <laughs> mommy. You hear that mommy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Understood. Well, thank you. So I'm so glad you could come. Early, or late. Thank you very much, Okay. So thank you again to our hosts for inviting me. I've been here before several times now. And um, so some of you I've met and some of you meeting for the first time and I appreciate your interest and um of course you're 50% of the equation of whatever will happen here tonight, <laughs> so I'm not all at fault uh, for the experience. In previous uh, times here, our hosts have picked out a topic for me to speak about, but I didn't hear about one this time. So um, I understand that, well, I was a little late and so you've been chanting for some time, and I came in the midst of that, and I noticed that some of you were chanting, and some of you were more listening, and so maybe we could talk a little bit about the nature of the chanting. It's a fairly, um, well, it's a broad uh, topic, and it, while our tradition is deep and theologically and philosophically uh, complex in, in many respects, the um, simplest expression of it, and and perhaps the most profound expression of it, is um, in the form of of the chanting. And that's what uh, people in this tradition are, are known for, for the most part, for chanting. And so there's a name for this, of course, Sanskrit name, if you'll allow me. And some of you may be familiar with it. It's fairly popular these days to participate in kirtan, in uh, various yoga retreats and uh, uh, the types of spiritual gatherings and this uh, kirtan is a, is a formal name for the chanting and the different types of kirtan. Kirtan means, it comes from the root, uh, kirti means like fame. So to, it's to give fame or to, to glorify. And... Um, I think it's a, it's a thing that we may have all experienced to one extent or another. The more we are engaged in the glorification of others who are worthy of such, the more we ourselves, uh, we, we, we kind of indirectly draw attention to ourselves without wanting to. We may want to draw attention to ourselves and that may be a problem. We may not be worthy of as much attention as we, as we think in terms, that is to say, of our present uh, sense of self, bundle of thoughts and emotions and uh, composite of various physical elements, this sense of self, as I say, may not be worthy of as much attention as we might as it may like us to believe. Our present sense of self demands uh, attention. After all, if we don't pay attention to it, then it won't exist, or so it seems, right? Therefore, we're busy working to put food on the table and and to survive. There's a struggle, if you will, for existence. But that uh, struggle for existence is only relative to the existence within our mind, the sense of what we are that uh, has been conjured up if you will, within the mind. Mind is, uh, in the yogic terminology, in a very just broad sense, functions in two basic ways. Sankalpa, Vikalpa, means to accepting and rejecting. So, for example, it, it takes thoughts and accepts them and connects them and forms concepts. Or it Filters out certain thoughts and limits the input of the world through the medium of the of the senses. our bodies made of senses as we know, sense of sight and taste and smell and touch and so forth. and through these mediums of the senses we experience very um, imperfectly what life is, what the nature of being is. In other words, we, we touch things, we get an impulse, we see forms, and if this sends an impulse to the mind. We, we hear sounds, and an impulse goes to the mind, and determinations are made. So in another sense, this accepting and rejecting that the mind is involved in, in a very basic sense determines our sense of self, because we accept some things as good and we reject other things as bad. We accept some things as cold and other things as hot. We develop likes and dislikes, all of which may be in opposition to the likes and dislikes, the hots and colds and goods and bads of another mind. And so we form a self, an individual that's separate from others. It's uh, um, you know the rugged individual. <laughs> Uh, self of ours that's I mean, not not so rugged and not so uh enduring, although we, we endure or that we endeavour I should say, to uh, to make it in an enduring sense of self and this is the then that struggle for existence. It's a struggle for making a false sense of existence an enduring one and it is futile when we it will it will be unsuccessful we will be unsuccessful in that struggle for that matter that sense of self is changing as the input from the senses changes as the senses themselves change with age or whatever may be the case something that was previously good becomes now bad something that was previously desirable becomes undesirable so this causes for a fluctuating sense of self and indeed we're we're looking for an enduring sense of self that has stability hmm. that's grounded that's that's here today and won't be gone tomorrow so we're really struggling for something that um, in the yogic world view exists which is our self but we're kind of asleep to what it really is that we are and awake to that which our sleeping self is um, causing animation of matter if you will. Self in the yogic world is a unit of consciousness and it it can extend itself and for example it does we extend ourselves into other things by, in terms of language, by, for example, the two letters M and Y, my, or mine. Do you follow what I'm saying? If I think this is my house, then I have extended myself into the building. It's mine. What makes it important is that it pertains, as I see it, as one may see it, to me. If the neighbor's house burns down, whom I don't know or I don't like, then it won't be of much consequence. But if mine burns down, it will be such a huge issue because it's it's part of me. It's part of what I, my sense of self. It's my house. It's my family. It's my car. It's my country. I am, you know, a, a suburbanite of Winston Salem. <laughs> And uh, you know, a married man or a woman or single, as may be the case, and and, um, and you know, you see the TV ad on for a particular car, and you go out and buy that one because that's you. You've extended yourself into that. So, by the word "my" or by, the, by this sense of possessiveness, our self kind of grows, but it grows in a false way. What makes the house that's mine important? is that I'm in it, by extension. What makes the car important is that I'm in it, by extension, of mine. This capacity of consciousness to extend itself into, into inanimate objects brings them to life and serves to define me. My means also, another way to talk about it is desires. We all have desires. So our desires define us. You follow me? Again, I like this, I don't like that, so I'm defining myself. So my sense of I is defined by my sense of mine, what I own. But we don't own anything. (laughs) That's the reality, isn't it? We can't keep it. As we say, it's here today and gone tomorrow. Very profound statement that everyone will smile and laugh or think, yeah, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow. But we don't live like that, do we? No. So this is a very simple uh, way of illustrating how deluded we can become. In other words, we are looking for enduring happiness. And we're looking for it, for the most part, I'm speaking in general, in relation to things that don't endure. Things. And we know, we have a kind of intuitive knowing at the same time, that those things are here today and gone tomorrow. But we go on pursuing Enduring happiness in relation to things that don't endure. Even when they, we don't even need a lot of theory. They they show us themselves. They change their form before us. I wanted him, and he became something I didn't want. Now I'm stuck with him. That happens, or vice versa. You know, you buy the thing, and you really wanted it, and then, you know, it wears out, and you're still paying for it for for so many years. It's become a problem for you now. So. This is um, just kind of, in a raw sense, the nature of material experience and and something about our sense of self that really constitutes kind of a bewilderment of the self. We're a unit of experiencing, and then there are things to be experienced. Consciousness experiences. Matter is experienced. As I've said before, If matter mattered independent of consciousness, who would know? Who would care? Consciousness is the knower, the carer, the experiencer, and by lending itself to matter, to things, those things take on a kind of a life. The car takes on a life because of the driver. Television takes on a life because of the viewer. The problem, as I said before, however, is sometimes those things that we turn on by extending ourselves into them and animating them, they overshadow our life and the fact that we're consciousness, we're the experiencer. And we become limited then. Just like in the example of the television, we turn on the television, it has no meaning without a viewer, but sometimes the television takes over the viewer's life. And somebody else has to come and pull them away from the television and say, hey, You've got a life outside of this. There's other things to do. So, in a, in a grander, in a broader, in a cosmic sense, as a unit of consciousness, we're part of, we're, we're animating the dead world, so to speak, of things, matter, and giving it a kind of a life, and then identifying with those things, and now with the fact that we're animating them. And what's, what, what makes things important to us. Is us. It's my car. The my is what's important, and the my means I've gone inside of it, but I've identified with it. I've extended myself into it. So, the yogic idea, of course, and many of you are familiar with this, I realize this is rather kind of a basic discussion, but I have to begin somewhere uh, in the yogic worldview, then we are to look within. As I've often said, go within or go without, and we've been going without for for a while, and it's we're on an empty, so to speak. And there's a false promise that you know that, that there's a fulfillment around the corner. Our material life is something like being invited to a feast that just never happens. The appetizers keep coming. And, you know, you're waiting for the feast. but If you just sit and keep eating appetizers after a while, you just get indigestion. But there seems to be some... We've got a hope that that fulfillment is around the corner by adding a couple of other things to our lives, changing the the scenery uh, to one extent or another. And where this hope comes from, this hope comes from the fact that... um, that what we are is is so meaningful in and of itself as a unit of consciousness in comparison to matter and the things that we animate think about it we're asleep in terms of what i'm talking about as to the real nature of ourselves although we can talk about it as human beings and theorize about it our experience of it is is limited we're invested in in material in, in things and that it constitutes that whole animation that the self creates of the material world animating the TV and you know turning the car on and so forth all of this is just the the sleeping condition of the self of consciousness consciousness asleep to its own self its own potential so we have a sense that life is really has potential to be better than it is and completely satisfying and completely fulfilling because it is. If we were just to know ourself, that's the beginning, to know to and uh we're in kind of a virtual reality, if you will, kind of plugged into a a virtual reality where we're projecting ourselves into things and in a whole creating a whole world in our mind that, that it's just the world of your mind, and everyone perceives it differently according to their mind. Again, as I said earlier, what may be cold for you may be hot for me, good for you may be bad for me, so good for you may be bad for me. Which is it? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it happy? Is it cold? Is it, it's just is relative to the mind's accepting and rejecting based on input from the senses, and the sensual input is hardly perfect. We make mistakes in our perception, we hear a sound. We think it's one thing. We get close. We find out it's something else. You can reach out in the dark and touch out touch something. Only to wake up and go, "Oh my god!" <laughs> so the senses are getting information, but the information that they're giving is imperfect. And then the mind is making a determination with imperfect information, and a sense of self is being created. And again, this self is keeping us separate from others. We're not getting at, the, at the, the full experience of life when we are stuck, so to speak, in the world of our mind. So in one sense, the yoga idea is a discipline to deconstruct the world of the mind. And interestingly enough, this accepting and rejecting that the mind is involved in, in a very general sense, is uh, much informed by sound. You know, in ancient times, they had a, um, an idea of the elemental constituents of the world, not like what you might learn in chemistry today, but a very kind of a basic idea of elements like solidity, liquidity, um, heat, movement, space, <speaking> earth water, fire, air, akash, space, ether. This is how they used to talk about and you can find this in the ancient texts and so forth. It's not a wrong idea, I mean, but it, it, it's just a, it's a way of speaking about it. There is solidity, there is liquidity, there is heat, there is movement, air, movement, and there is space accommodating. And then in, in these elements, then you find... For example, you find in earth, you find that we can smell, we can touch, we can taste, we can hear. So there's, there's, there's smell, there's touch, there's form, there's movement, uh, and there's sound. If you go to water, like going up on a scale, the water, there's no smell, but there's touch, there's form, there's taste, there's also sound. Then if you go higher to fire, heat. In heat there's no taste. In heat there's no uh, smell. But there's touch and there's sound and form. Then you go to air. Then you have only sound and touch. Then you go to ether or space and there's only sound. So the point is the sound pervades all of the elemental constituents of of the stuff of matter, so to speak. That's one half of the equation of the world of our experience. We're the other half, the better half. We're the experiencer, again, as I said, matters, that which is experienced. The problem is that we are experiencing it through a material filter that we've identified with made up of senses and mind. So we're not getting an unadulterated or pure, exper- full experience of of what it is. We think we're matter to some extent and we act accordingly because all material forms, as I said earlier, are here today and gone tomorrow. So there's a sense that I might be gone tomorrow. There, We have to get busy, do something, They're the struggle for existence. So to unravel all of this, ourselves from all of this, my point simply is that sound is very um, useful. It pervades the whole of the material elements of the world, of matter, and it's very um, instrumental in assisting the mind, which is we would consider like a subtle matter, subtle form of matter, assisting the mind in its function of accepting and rejecting, sankhopa, vikopa. Sound is the higher end of this gross material constituents and then we, in space that it corresponds with and then we go to mind, intelligence and the ego. So sound is, is, is very instrumental in the workings of the mind and the developing of the identity that I'm talking about, the false identity that we have. So the idea in our school of thought is that there's a kind of sound that can, that will be very helpful helpful in in unraveling us from this whole thing. And by engaging in that, we engage in an exercise that is not irrational, because I'm trying to speak about it in a rational, reasonable way to capture your attention and interest in, in the subject and so forth. But at the same time, the exercise itself. The kirtan, the chanting, is not a, it's not a rational exercise. It's a, it's a trans-rational exercise. It's an exercise of the heart. It's a waking, if you will, of that self that is asleep. And how extraordinary it is, that self, our self, as I say, can be understood to some extent by just looking at what it does when it's asleep. We're asleep to our own potential. We're invested in things and we've developed an identity based on that investment. And the whole world of material experience is, is going on like this. It's all the, just a sleeping condition, a dormant condition of the self. Self in a dormant condition. Self like like frozen. Like I said before, what is the difference between water and ice? There's a similarity, but what you can do with water and what you can do with ice, there's a big difference. With ice, you can cool water. With water, you can, you can do so many things, right? Water is life, practically, materially speaking. You can drink, you can swim, you can bathe, you can make electricity, light the world. And so, we're in like a frozen condition, a dormant sleeping condition yet see the power of the self. The whole world is animated by it. Again, as I said, matter has no consequence independent of consciousness. Matter is a conception for that matter, something that is conceived. Consciousness is is labeling it, naming it, and, and thinking, in one sense, itself to be the controller of it while being mastered by it, being oppressed by it. We are oppressed by the material conception of self that we are absorbed in. And therefore we don't have the kind of freedom that we feel life should be about. We're in a frozen condition, so we are like water, but we're in a condition like ice at the present. There's a sense that we could be much more than we are or everything we want to be, but we generally have to settle for less and rationalize it and, and so forth. This sense comes from the fact that what our potential actually is, it's huge. Potential for what? For being happy. <laughs> this is what everybody wants, to be happy. Under the oppressive influence of the mind and the dictates of the senses, we think we know something, but in all of it we don't even know our our own self. So. This kirtan is meant to reverse this whole thing, and that's a huge task, because we've been thinking like this and functioning like this for a long, long, long time. said Metaphysically, it's said that our material existence is the fire of desire. As I said earlier, our sense of I is determined by our sense of my, mine. So desire, we are our materially speaking, we are our desires. And desire's like a fire, it burns and and you know, the more you feed it, the more it, it burns. It never never quits. So we're metaphysically we're on fire. And physically speaking, biologically biologically speaking, we're also on fire, smoldering, melting, like the wicked witch of the West. We are melting. And metaphysically speaking again when the biological fire then incinerates the, uh, the physical self, then the fire of the metaphysical fire of desire generates another form from matter to suit our desire. The fire of desires is keeping it going. We're like, it's like chain smoking. You, just as one's going out, you light another one. Then it's a bad habit. So to break this habit difficult. It was very difficult. We are habituated in such a way, in terms of our identification with things and our sense that that happiness will be derived from things and their acquisition. We're just headlong getting plunged into this, you know, in one form or another. Some of us are obviously less materialistic than others and that's why we come to a gathering like this. But uh, we are all involved in it to one extent or another. This, as much as we've identified our self with this bundle of emotions and uh, psychology and m- material form, as much as we have to take. You understand what I'm saying? To live in this world, you have to take. In order to maintain this sense of self, we're, we're hunting and we're being hunted. Look over this shoulder and someone is, you know, jivo, jivasya, jivanam. One living being is food for another. Again, struggle for existence. We're takers. We have to be. Because the sense of self that we have is needy. And it's speaking to us, badly, if you don't feed me, then I will go away. <laughs> and because that's my sense of self, then that's an existential problem. So I'm busy then working to put whatever may be food on the table. I'm busy emotionally to maintain a relationship that will make me whole, or I hope it will, I think it will, I want it to, and so forth. And, and so we're preoccupied like this. And for a long, 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 long time, chain smoking again, for lifetimes, after lifetime, after lifetime. I've said before the human form of life is unique and, and differentiated in one sense from the less evolved forms of life in that it gives us the kind of freedom to talk about these things, to think about these things. It's kind of like if we were to compare our material existence to kind of an incarceration, you know, under the oppression of the mind, where we're limited by what we perceive to be life through the, through the medium of the imperfect senses and so forth. If, if we were to compare material life to, to like a sentence, then the body would be the cell. In human life, it's kind of like probation. Why? Because in human life, we really get the chance to give. In the less evolved forms of life, there's not much opportunity to give or to do something voluntarily. They're very much oppressed. Consciousness there is very much oppressed by the demands that that body places upon them. Mm-hmm. Wildlife, for example, they're, they're very much oppressed by the needs to eat and sleep. They can't stop to let somebody else go first, excuse me, you go first, kind of a thing. It's the wild. Of course, we have a fascination with the wild, because we, we, we like to be free, and it looks like they're free. But if we look carefully, they're not free. But there is a freedom, and yoga is about finding that freedom. And human life is a chance to engage in yoga. Human life is like being on probation. We get some freedom, Use it right, and you can become free entirely. Use it wrong, and, well, that chain-smoking is is a bad habit. And you can go backwards, too. It's, It's up to you. It's your desire. What you want is one thing. What form of life will be most suited for that? That may be another thing. Human life is suited for this want, want to know why, I told this to a fellow once and he said, what am I supposed to spend my whole life asking why? I said, yep, <laughs> that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to answer the question, not put it in the back and forget about it. And it comes to the fore. That's in human consciousness. Why do I exist? Existential questions arise in human life and they are to be answered. Where will the answers come from? Good question. Where do the answers come to all the other forms of life in terms of their necessity. Every other form of life has a necessity to eat, to sleep, to mate, to defend. They all have these necessities, as we do, but they aren't burdened, if you will, by the necessity to know why, as we are. That burden, as we may talk about it though, is to help us grow, right? Difficulties, we spend so much time trying to avoid them. They come to help us, actually enable us to grow. (laughs) This is a burden. Why? Other forms of life are not burdened by that. They have necessities like we do for eating, for sleeping, for mating, defending, and if we look carefully we'll find what? In every species of life these needs, there's a system built into nature to meet those needs. Every species of life knows how to defend itself without thinking, right? It has a built-in defense system. It only works so far because we can only defend this sense of self, you know. Relatively speaking, it will be gone tomorrow. It's fascinating to want, to look and see in nature all the different systems. Like the skunk with his tail, we see him in our monastery quite often. That's his defense system. Works good for me. <laughs> I'll get out of this way pretty quickly. But, uh, and for eating, and, and, I, and I mean to say that, the, the, for example, the mating issue is not a big, it's, it's all solved for other species of life. Who to mate, when to mate, right? It's all solved. Huge issue for us, isn't it? Mating. Eating, what to eat, it's solved. For all of the forms of life, it's, it's, all, the nature, it's a built, built into nature. The problems are there, and the answers are there. Now, here we come to human life. We have a problem. We have an issue. We have a necessity. Besides the necessity to eat, sleep, mate, and defend, we have a necessity to know why. Now, are we to think that there's no system for knowing? I'm on my own here for this. Every other species has got... Nature is providing. Why not for us, for knowing why? And, of course... If we ignore the question and just concentrate on eating, sleeping, mating and defending, well, then we become a two-legged animal. We're not really living in human consciousness by ignoring that question. And we can can become a very dangerous uh, beast. I was talking with one of my friends earlier today about how the uh, world community is, uh, intellectual community is, is largely invested in in science, scientific worldview, rather than a philosophical worldview, if you will, more a scientific worldview, it seems to be more satisfying to people these days. There's plenty of philosophy to think about the limitations of science and so for the many <coughs> eloquent speakers, even from the scientific community of times gone by, have spoken about how you know, life is better explained through poetry than through math or you know, feeling is more important than thinking and so on. But uh, thinking about it, I came to the conclusion that the, the reason that philosophical thinking and deep thinking about existential affairs and so forth that shed light on the shortcomings of the way in which science in a very limited way describes something about existence The reason that's being put in the background is because science is providing things. Things, do you understand? That's what it's doing, it's providing things. Solutions to material problems, whether it be disease, I'm saying it's bad necessarily, but but things aren't everything, do you understand? It's providing things and that's like heaven on earth, we're getting something out of this. Something like that, so it's a pity, it's a shame. It's a real dead end, actually. To stop asking why, or to think that the why has been answered just by some mechanistic, uh, you know, you connect these two things together in the brain and that's why. Yeah, they are connected, but there's more to it than that. Yes, two things are connected when one experiences bliss, but does it come from just connecting those things or does it come from something else? So anyway. Hmm, to answer the question why this is important. When we don't do that, to the extent that we become unconcerned with that, then we just find bigger and so-called better, but maybe worse, ways of eating, sleeping, mating, and defending. Or these questions become bigger problems for us. Why is it such a problem for us how to mate? Dogs and cats don't have the problem, they figured it out. I mean, <laughs> why can't we figure it out? Why? Because we are meant to figure out something more important why, in which, upon understanding, all these other necessities will fall into place, to what extent they should be indulged in, in what ways, and so forth. It all falls into place. So this why question is so important, and we're not left unto ourselves to answer it. There's a system in nature for that, actually. We call it uh, revelation. In other words, it comes from beyond reason. We should reason about why, enough to realize the limits of reasoning even uh, there are a number of examples in in the um, in the secular world in terms of findings realizations insights that uh, great thinkers or scientists for that matter have come up with by stepping back from their discipline what was that one we were talking about for example charles towns yeah what did he say About how he invented the laser. He invented the laser, yeah. So he said that he got some kind of inspiration, which he cannot explain. That it's not like out of rational thinking. Yeah. So they even by stepping back sometimes from their discipline for a moment, thinking about it too much, can't get it, and then it comes. So there's such a thing. It's good to know. There's something beyond reason. That's reasonable to conclude that. Reason is such a such a petty thing in comparison to ourselves, as is the mind, as is the body, as are the things. So, to know thyself, and in order to do that, we need a trans... We have the opportunity in human life, but we need a trans-rational method. It's not unreasonable to, to as I say, to conclude that that comprehensive knowing and experiencing and feeling, which is real knowing, will come from something more than a mere rational exercise. I mean, you can look at an apple and rationalize about what it is and analyze its constituents and so forth, and, but you will never know it as you could by, by tasting it, right? So feeling is knowing, feeling. Feeling means heart, right? The brain may die, but one will live on. If the heart dies, then finished. That's the end. Heart is everything. So this kirtan, as I said, is a transrational exercise. It's a hard exercise. It's reasonable to engage in it, as I'm speaking about the necessity for, or the, I'm advocating the cause, what potential it will have, how it will deconstruct the mind, how it will pay back the debt our karmic debt from having taken. As I said, to conduct ourselves in terms of our material sense of self, we have to take because the body has needs, right? So a needy person has to take. Is loving about taking or is love about giving? And is life about love? We hope so. We sure think so. We sure act as if it must be. We're surely in pursuit of it. Love is about giving, but this material conception of life causes us to be in a condition of having to take, feeling needy. The self has not the needs that the mentally conceived sense of self has. To be freed from those needs, to deconstruct that world of the mind and let the heart come out, the self come out, that makes for them the potential of a life of actually Giving. And giving is really, it means growth. It means, it means love. Love. This kirtan is a love song. That's what it is. Kirtan. Kirtan, as I said, means to glorify. When we glorify others who are worthy of such, then attention comes to us. We may want to bring attention to ourselves, we may not be really worthy of it in terms of our material sense of self, as I began. But when we find others who are more worthy, even materially speaking, a great person has done a great thing, a great philanthropist or a great idea, we, we glorify that person, then we, we become recognized for such. So, kirtan, I mean, seen in a general sense, glorifying others brings actually glory to ourself, so to speak. And when our glorification is reposed on something really worthy of the glorification, if we could sort that out, if we could find the center, locate ourselves on the circumference, and then make a connection from there with the center, then we can move like this all around the circumference, tied to the center and all that movement of yours and all that movement of yours and yours and mine will all be beautiful. Do you understand? We're all tied to the same center. If we tie ourselves, we consider ourselves the center, then there will be so many uh, conflicting orbits. If we throw a stone in the pool, it will make beautiful concentric circles if we throw another stone in another place, another in another place, then it will become disconcerting to the mind, disturbing. But the one stone, and then those concentric circles, is peaceful to the mind. You take two stones, and three stones, and 108 stones, and throw them all in the exact same place, then what? You've got so many stones, but they all have the same center, and all the circles are concentric and beautiful. And So how to accommodate all of us all of our sense of our own individuality and, uh, and, and, and so forth to live in a harmonious way. That won't be possible by living in this world of the mind which, which makes something good for you and bad for me. Your happy is my sad, your heart is my cold, that won't work. Kirtan is for bringing us out of that. And, and this Kirtan that we do in our tradition is centered on that which is worthy of glorification, It's like like the center of our body in one sense is the stomach. So that's where we put the food, right? Put the food in the stomach, what happens? You put it in one place and it goes everywhere. The whole body is mystically nourished because the stomach, as much as it takes, it gives. Do you understand? It takes it and transforms it and gives it back to us in a way that we can actually use it that we otherwise could not. We have some energy, some energy to give. We have to find the right center to give it to, whereby it will be transformed and given back to us in a way to make our life meaningful. And this is the basic idea of love, because in love, what happens? When you really give in love, and that person to whom you give accepts that love, what happens? As soon as she accepts your love, and you've really given it, it comes back to you, right? This is kind of invisible, but it happens. You've given to him, he's accepted, and because he's accepted, he's got something, and say he's got something, it, just, it comes back out again, and you can feel it. So giving, and to the center, and we call the center, Krishna. Therefore, we sing the song of Krishna. And that's a big topic. Why Krishna? It's a big topic, but but why not? Let's take Hinduism, for example. One of the great religious and spiritual traditions of the world. And you cannot find more candidates for God or Goddess anywhere. (laughs) At least there are more... Uh, more to choose from there, (laughs) Mm, right, (laughs) in Hinduism, than any other tradition. And if we look at all of them, then we find, we study them carefully, we find they're not all the same, actually. The Buddha, the wisdom, representing wisdom. We want to cross cultural or religion, we come through the Christ, the sacrificer. Noble things, no doubt we want to go back, say, to Hinduism because we just exhausted you know, a quarter of the other religious world or, or half of it, Buddhism and Christianity. Go to, well, Islam I don't know much about, but Allah, the, you know, whatever, the, the, great, the great one. Back to Hinduism, we've got a thousand, you know, to deal with. We've got the goddess of learning, the god of destruction, Shiva. We've got uh, the god of creation, Brahma we got a God for everything in Hinduism. But if you look at the whole thing, then you come to Krishna, what do you find? How is the Godhead being represented there? All of the gods and goddesses in the Hindu pantheon have something to do. Krishna has nothing to do. Reality there is to pick it as playing the flute and dancing. Playful, only playing. So what does that mean to us? In one sense, it means this. In order to play, you have to have some power. Am I right? If you want to take a vacation, you have to have worked and saved some money, some power. Then you can play. And when your power runs out, back to work. So the one who is only playing must be all-powerful. And furthermore, it's very clear, that of all the gods and goddesses in the Hindu pantheon, Krishna represents love. So, who else will you choose? Who <laughs> in the right mind would we'll choose anyone else? That's what we want. Love. The idea, of the Krishna idea is that, is that when we speak about Krishna, we're speaking about the heart of reality. And it some comes if you look carefully, it comes so close to our human reality. And therefore, this heart of reality is depicted human-like. Youthful, youth is the most desirable commodity. Everybody wants youth except young people. They want to get older. They're not wise yet. (laughs) Innocent, but not wise. Krishna represents... If you study how this reality has been depicted in the form of Krishna by the rishis, by the mystics who experienced the heart of reality as adolescent, youth, playful, innocent, but wise at the same time. Complexion, like uh, the sham it's called, that dark complexion. In the in, in anesthetics it's, it's considered the, the color of, of romantic love. So this is how they experienced reality. And then they they talked about it like this. And they advocated of all the sounds, the jungle of sounds that come in the all the of revelation through all the scriptures, all the mantras, and so this one sound, Krishna, can fully satisfy you. What's in a name? So much. What's in a name? The more perfect a name is, the more it contains what? If your name is perfect, then by hearing it, I know something about your form, like Big John. Must be a big guy, (laughs) right? That's Big John. That's Little John over there. So as soon as you hear the name, you know, what's going to be? He's going to be little, this one's going to be big. So the name includes some information about the form, right? And if the name is more perfect, then it tells us something about his qualities, whatever that may be. Little simple John, you know, or <laughs> little complex Tom, or whatever. <laughs> you know. The more, I and mean, the more perfect the name is, the more it describes that person. So it, in the name comes the, comes the reality of that person's form and their qualities and then what they do. What is their play? What is their pastime? How they, how they pass their time. So these rishis, they experience this heart of real- Mystics, I'm talking about this heart of reality. And then then they try to talk about it, you know, in our language. And language has its limitations, but they they gravitated towards poetry and song, these types of linguistic uh, you know, expressions in order to try to capture what it was that they experienced. And so the, the Krishna, kishibhu vachaka shabda nascha chadnivrati vachaka, they explain the meaning of this word. It means all attractive. The center. The center. It's all attractive. It's irresistible, charming, compelling. Like like a handsome young man appears to a a beautiful young young lady, charmed, and they experienced reality, something like that. So they try to talk about it. And Krishna, and in the name in the sound Krishna, is the form of Krishna, the qualities of Krishna, the lila, the pastime of Krishna. And so by this kirtan of Krishna-nam, eventually the devotees, they chant this name and this mental self that we talked about earlier is deconstructed and all the problem of existence is solved. The struggle is over. That struggle was only in relation to a false sense of self that was needy. And I'm not. The struggle is over. Peace and more now, we want more than peace, right? We're not living in this world for peace, we're living for love, and love is not entirely peaceful. It's peaceful in one sense. We cannot rest until we find love. And once we find love, then we're off again. Love has a movement of its own, right? We can't get off, but sometimes it's disconcerting too. But we can't give it up. Spiritual life is like that, you see. Spiritual life is not set in stone. It's not... it's not predictable. Thankfully, it won't fit within your mind. It won't be controlled and contained by ourselves. Reality—it's not such. It's—it's it's, its bigger than us, and we're part of it. It's alive and it's dancing and it's unpredictable. Don't come to a spiritual group just looking for all the answers. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I got it. Hmm? Turn around and spit it out at somebody else. And Increase nothing but your own bile. Hmm? No. You have to take it, and there's wisdom in that, in, in, with the words of great persons trying to express, however incompletely, imperfectly, that which they experience that is beyond logic. By the force of their own experience, more than their words, we're compelled to try it ourselves and pursue that. Even if everything they said didn't make sense or we couldn't understand it. I think he's got something there she's got something so to enter into that and then you have to kind of you've got your own page in the book of life there to write your your story hmm. so they experience this reality as dynamic living dancing they depicted the heart of reality dancing playing the flute and so many things all the things that we see in a story about Krishna or the picture because they all have lot of meaning to them uh, for us. And and they, they speak to us, as I say, about like a romance with reality. And so this this song, this love song, of like for example, Hare Krishna, Mamandra, it's, it's actually a love song. It's a type of kirtan that's glorifying the romantic life of the absolute. How esoteric can you get? The romantic life of the absolute singing about that. I mean. That's a pretty secret thing. We know He's Allah. Oh. He's Brahma, He's Shiva, He's are a big thing, so all in relation to us in this world, right? The destroyer, the Creator, the all powerful one. That's all in relation to us in this world. But what is this world? As we've already concluded, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow. Is that though is God just in the balcony? Witnessing everything here is the front stage? Does does reality have a life of its own, too? And what that must be? They say in the Bible, I think, that man is made, and woman, too, I suppose. They meant in the image of God. So if we're, like, in the image, just a reflection, what must be the reality? Does reality have a life? Is it just watching over us? Blessing, condemning, blessing, condemning. That's kind of a boring (laughs) sense of the center of everything. It's like... God gets displaced from being in the center. He's in the balcony. The main stage is down here. Every now and then he comes out blessed, condemned. (laughs) We're not interested in his life. We don't think he has one. His life is just blessing or condemning ours. (laughs) We're what's important. (laughs) See, this is a very childish idea, spiritual idea. Children always want to take, So, only to take but We're teaching about giving, and when you start to give, and you give like kind of scientifically by finding the proper center, sorting these things out philosophically, that kind of giving is the real getting of life. And what do you get into through this Kirtan, for example, you get into the secret life of God, secret life of the Absolute, this is like really esoteric stuff now. God has a love life, reality's in love, and, and I can enter into the secret there. Who's even interested? We're just interested in having our own illusory lives facilitated, for the most part. So to forego that is big enough in itself. What does it speak then of having interest and entrance into what that life must be that we are made in the image of, kind of like a reflection of, a shadow of? What's the substance then? So this kirtan is for this, this Krishna kirtan is for entering into there. It's a very esoteric idea. It's a love song. And because it's a it's a love song describing uh, the romantic life of the absolute and, and it affording us access there, love is so powerful that 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 which is not love becomes exposed in its presence. I mean, when you see somebody actually gives and sacrifices and loves and, and compared to what you're doing in the name of love, which is maybe taking for you become a little embarrassed. So my point is that when you make this approach to real love. Through this kind of kirtan, for example, that which is not love, which is much of what our life is about, becomes apparent for what it is. The kind of things I've talked about earlier—the you know, the the taking that our life is involved in, the karmic implication of exploitation that we're all just by necessity of our identification with a sense of self that is needy—we're involved in. All this is deconstructed. All of this is 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 done away with. This. Uh, false sense of self that we maintain, it will be exposed in the light of that, for what, how petty it is. And, and renunciation. So I visited with my parents and they said, well, you know, Swami, oh, yeah. um, so uh, what do you eat? Yeah, my niece asks, well, I eat food, you know, vegetarian, and, and uh, well, do you drive a car? I said, well, I did come here in a car. Well, isn't that materialistic? I thought you, you know, were supposed to be renounced, and you didn't have anything, and so there's this idea, you follow that, that to be spiritual, is to not have anything, and it's we're all affected by it to some extent. If I had come in here with naked, you know, you might have thought, wow, I guess he's got something. I don't know why. <laughs> <It's> weird. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't want anything. He Doesn't take anything. He's, he, lives, he sleeps on a bed of nails or something. We find, wow, he must, you know, he's renounced. (laughs) But um, actually, renunciation is not about moving away from things. It's actually about moving closer to things. It's the first step in loving, actually. Because renunciation is about giving up the idea that it belongs to you. And the best way to give up the idea that it belongs to you is to is to find out who it does belong to. Let's say you're waiting in line, at the to buy something, and the person in front of you drops a twenty dollar bill on the floor. Now, any decent person will not think to take the twenty dollar bill, other than maybe for a second, in their in their own <laughs> pocket, because they know who the proprietor is. So, knowledge of the proprietor takes away the tendency for wanting to own it ourself. It used to be in times gone by that if you saw a lady and she had a ring on her finger, then you'd, you'd back off. You know, She's taken... I mean, that's a crude way of... But it used to be talked about like that. <laughs> I realize things have changed for the better. But... Uh, uh, so. And my point is simply that knowledge of the proprietorship of something takes away the tendency within us to own it for ourselves falsely. So to find the center again, to whom everything belongs, to find the proper utilization of all things, that's what's involved in the center. Everything has utilization, everything. To excavate the real meaning of everything is to excavate its relationship with its source to find that out. If I take a piece out of this microphone, and you know we just take it independently, a screw or something, I might do something with it, find some use for it. But you know, if you put it in the microphone, boom, and the sound is, is, is found it's found its utilization. So, this kirtan is, it involves It involves excavating the connection between all material manifestations and their source, and then how to utilize them properly. So, renunciation is renouncing the sense of proprietorship. So, it, it's about getting, it's like the first step in love, if you will. It's about getting closer to people not getting farther away from people, you follow me? Let's say a tiger sees a beautiful young girl. He will think, wow, great, I'm hungry. Hmm? Let's say a young boy sees a beautiful young girl. He may think, wow, she's beautiful. I've another hunger and I'd like to satisfy it in relation to her. Then say the mystic sees the young girl, just beautiful and he will relate to her in an entirely different way, right? He doesn't have to run away from her. He sees her for what she... What, what is that combination of elements and sees the soul within and and sees the confusion on the part of the soul and ministers to that and so forth. and All seeing, but with different eyes based on their lesser or greater development of their cell, their consciousness, their, you know, we are perceiving agent. So... Renunciation is about getting closer to people because it's it's about stopping from taking from people and being the center and owning and you know we have we have relationships with people because we need sometimes and so we want to add on to ourselves but when one grows anyone will tell you you got to get to a position of some material sense of satisfaction before pursuing a relationship that will be will be enduring. If it's all only about you need, then it's going to be a problem. So renunciation is about getting closer to people. It's about loving people. It's not about running away from things. It's about interacting with things on friendly terms. Seeing them more for what they are because renunciation means to step back from the experience. It's objectivity. The closer you are to a thing, the harder it is to see it for what it is. When we're subjectively involved with a thing, then we can't objectively see it for what it is. We're we're biased. So the step back means to see it objectively for what it is, and then you can relate to it for what it is. And then it or he or she will get more from that relationship. There's knowledge then factored into the rapport, to the love, enlightened love. So my point is that this love song of kirtan, it automatically brings about renunciation. It automatically, because it's about, it connects us with the proprietor, the center, it automatically, mystically informs us in such a way that we 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 begin to see things differently. And like leaves fall from the tree, attachments that we have, they start to fall away. Say the best defense is a good offense. So how you perform this formidable task of deconstructing this world of the mind we talked about, it's just like, wow, do I do go look at this you know blank wall all night and stop allowing input from my senses to misinform my mind? No, that'll be very difficult. But girtan is very easy to do. And it will deconstruct the world of the mind, and bring you out, and allow you to be the lover that you feel you, you are, and the happy person, the fulfilled person that you feel, is just around the corner. If I could only add this or subtract that, get rid of him and get him, or you know. <laughs> so it's uh, it's um, that kirtan and Krishna kirtan. We're doing nam kirtan, the nam name, of Krishna. And as the devotee chants the name of Krishna, then he or she gradually, internally, while this mental world is being deconstructed, he or she is becoming acquainted with the world of the love life of the Absolute, so the qualities, the form, the pastime, the way the Absolute spends its time on its own, so to speak, which is depicted in Krishna, free, dancing, no obligations, One becomes acquainted with that. So this is a little bit what we're uh, involved in. Forgive me for taking as long as I have to conclude my talk tonight on Kirtan. Question, yes, sir. So earlier you you, uh, alluded to these great saints and sages. I've seen saints and sages that come and say they are God. So what's the difference between your saints and sages and that saint or saint? Yog mystic yogis come forth and say, I'm Shiva, I'm Brahma, I'm, I'm Krishna, I'm all of them together. <laughs> well, you know, I, I was talking about this with somebody earlier today, Actually, of course, we don't say that in our tradition. Our mystics don't say that they're God, our gurus don't say that they're God, we are devotees of God, which, of course, this is a, this is a philosophy, a theology, that's prayogen, that's, that's, that's goal, that's, that's culmination is love. Because love requires two. the Two become one, but in the dynamic sense. If you and I fall in love, then you and I become we. The two of us still exist, but we're now unified in a dynamic way. We don't extinguish one another. So love is reciprocal dealings. So ours is a, is a tradition in which the ideal, the goal is love. Not, not a bad idea, since that's what we're all really looking for. We may look to knowledge to do away with the falsity of what sometimes masquerades as love. But unless we find love, we'll not be fulfilled. Knowledge won't satisfy us. And for that matter, love has a knowledge of its own. Love has an essential kind of knowledge built into it. When you love, you know what to do. So, loving is the highest knowledge. So, anyway, in our tradition, the the mystics, the the perfect realizers and so forth, don't make the claim that they are God and that you, by following them, will become God also or something like that, which is often the case. That's a different uh, kind of uh, philosophical take where the end is, is knowledge, not love. And so... We don't, we, we don't, we don't agree with that. Actually, that uh, it was a big philosophical discussion. But as I said earlier, I was talking with somebody about that, and he said, "Well, such and such mystic says that he's Krishna." And I said, "Well, let him produce something like the Bhagavad Gita." Hmm. And you, you're familiar with the Bhagavad Gita? It's like the most famous Hindu text. It's been around for thousands of years. It's been translated by thousands of people, and in, in hundreds of languages. It's it's like, you know, one of the greatest books on earth. And the story goes, it was spoken in about 45 minutes by Krishna to his friends. So, you know, okay, anybody can claim whatever they want, but can you give us a Bhagavad Gita? <laughs> or something, you know, a, a, something of somewhat, you know, similar contribution to the world, other than you're just, Smiling face, I am Gosh. I am Krishna, I am God. I mean, we have a standard by which to make a comparison. Another fellow said, I am Krishna, I am Ram, I am Christ, all in one. I said, well, you'd never know it. I mean, they did a lot for the world. (laughs) They they really said a lot, did a lot, uh, and all you're doing is repeating them, you know, partially here or there. And um, in my submission, not not perfectly either. So, I mean, anybody can claim whatever they want. But uh, to back it up or something, that, that would be something different. And I, for example, I'm a devotee of Krishna. That's not a that's not debatable, right? This is what I do my whole life by seeing the name of Krishna. And, this, and in the Gita, Krishna says this is what his devotees do. So, if another person says, you know, some some fellow says I'm Krishna, that's a, I would be the first one to recognize him when being a devotee of Krishna. You would think. The fellow says, I'm Krishna, and uh, so to some of my friends years back, and they said, then can you show your universal form? Because in the Gita, Krishna shows this form in which everything is contained within him in the 11th chapter. And uh, so the fellow said, well, I only show it to my devotees. First, you have to become devoted to me. So then they came and told me, I said, you should have told them, hey, the question here is not whether we're devotees of Krishna, <laughs> that's obvious. <laughs> question is whether you're Krishna. <laughs> we're obviously devotees of Krishna. We're always singing, if you're Krishna, we're always singing your name, so why are you holding back <laughs> from revealing yourself to us? So, I mean, I mean, India's got like, you know, a few too many gods, self-proclaimed claimed ones. It's, it's you know, it's full of them. So anyway, ours is, but to be more polite about it, ours is a little bit of a different uh, philosophy. Ours is a doctrine of love, not of... Not uh, that life culminates in, in knowing the falsity of material existence and foregoing it, which is kind of a negative theology, if you will, doing away with the negative. That's something. If you're in negative numbers, to come to zero means to have arrived somewhere. But to go into positive numbers, that's another thing altogether, isn't it? So our material life is like negative numbers. We are going down, we're, we're taking, and so we're owing. That's the karmic Reality, we've taken, now we owe, we take more, we owe more, and so forth. So to forego the taking, to stop taking, that can be done with knowledge. Knowledge that by taking, I'm going down. You're you're working against your self-interest. So to stop taking. That's some kind of love, but it's abstract, isn't it? To stop taking, to stop exploiting. Certainly that's part of love, but there's not anything really positive in that. So a lot of teachers, they want us to come from negative numbers to zero. And that can be accomplished by knowledge, applying knowledge. But in kirtan, what we do is, we talk about going into the positive numbers, exploring that from where the kirtan comes. This is premdhan, the wealth of prem of love. It comes from a realm of love, here, transported, exported by sound this sound. But hearing that sound, we have some access into positive numbers. What is love? Like a lot of people talk about compassion. That's beautiful. But is it the full face of love? Think about it. In order to have compassion, you have to have people that, that are, are without, that you can be compassionate to. If everybody gets enlightened, compassion then disappears in that school of thought, right? But only the schools of thought that talk about love are really attractive to us. Why not talk about the whole thing, full face? Not just this side of love that is the end of exploitation, the end of taking. That's important, but if you were, your whole exercise ends up in not being a taker, then as again, I said you've come from negative numbers from the karmic world of debt to zero. You don't owe anything, but it's a question of how much you've gained also. I'll give it to you in another way. We'll conclude with this, on this question. Some philosophers say that if you are satisfied, then why move? Right? If you're full, you're happy, why move? It's desire is a sign of emptiness, lacking. So when you're full, there's no movement. Therefore, ultimate reality is still. Movement there's only in relation to taking. Taking, taking, taking. For the needy, the needy soul, the confused soul, come to knowledge, stop taking, shanti, shanti. Be still, be alone, be peaceful. So that's reasonable. But our school of thought we, we reason a little further, spiritually speaking, and we say that there's a there's a condition in which one is so full that it the fullness generates a kind of movement that's not taking, but it's the movement of of celebration of one's fullness of love and of of giving, so full that you're giving it out. And so then this, this reality that was still becomes alive and starts to dance and so forth, it has a life of its own and you can enter into that. This is what we're talking about in Kirtan. And that's why uh, our siddhas, perfect souls, don't claim to be God, they're in relationship with God. It's a dynamic unity. Yes, you had a question? So the the kirtan diminishes or takes away the need for dharma and grace? The kirtan is grace. (laughs) The opportunity to participate in in kirtan is grace in one sense. And um, what it does is, um, with relation to dharma, is we call it prema-dharma. It's like super-dharma. It's like beyond dharma. Dharma means in many things, but in one sense it means to be dutiful and do the right thing, act according to one's nature and uh, sacred texts, give many directives as to what is dharmic and what is not and so forth, and, and to conduct oneself accordingly. So this kirtan, yes, it transcends that, which is relative to this world. Dharma is about like leading a human life that is colored, in consideration of uh, spirituality, so you eat certain foods, not other foods, and and the, all of the human experience is is colored with some connection with God, something like that. But what this Kirtan is about is not adding a religion and religious mandates and codes of conduct onto one's life, human life, but transcending the limits of human life altogether. Now, it makes you dharmic automatically, something like that, and then takes you beyond dharma. To means love. Because, you know, love is about breaking laws, right? Love is lawless. There are no rules in love. And I won't mention the other one, but... So, dharma is about rules. Love is about, like, beyond. Now, in the normal course, you become dharmic in order to go in the direction of love because dharma means to live a life that takes as little as possible, only necessary and this kind of thing. But um, this is kind of like an express strain, this kirtan. It takes one beyond dharma to pray and very quickly. And it is grace. So it's, it's a gracious grant, an opportunity. It comes from up to down. It's a way in which the Absolute extends itself to us, opens a window of opportunity. Go here. Go through that hole. Go there. Follow that sound. Something like that. To be in kirtan is to be in grace. There is no more grace-filled situation to be in, in this world, than within the kirtan. Interesting, huh? (laughs) I find every time I talk about it, it's they said you're 50% of the equation, so some things I've said and that I've never said before and I found them interesting. Mm. <laughs> Thank you for you know, being part of that. Yes? I wonder, wouldn't it follow that the ultimate reality of knowledge is love? We say that knowledge is not the highest, the highest love, but love is the highest knowledge. How's that? Yeah. So bhakti is the end of knowledge. Yeah. In other words, Really, the absolute is unknown and unknowable. But if you are to know the absolute, it will be by love that you know. Can it be contained within the head? But with the heart, which is spacious and broad, it can be experienced and known. So, this, in the Gita. Are you familiar with the Bhagavad Gita? I'll tell you something from that for just a second. In the ninth chapter of the Gita is the middle chapter of eighteen. It's where the secret is kept in the middle of the Gita. The beginning of that chapter, Krishna tells Arjuna, Raja Vidya, Raja Guyam. He says, I'm going to speak to you about the highest knowledge and the most confidential secret. Raja Vidya, Vidya means knowledge. Raja means king. Raja Vidya, Raja Guyam. Guyam means secret. The king of secrets, the secret of secrets and the highest knowledge. And then at the end of the chapter, what does he say? He says, Manmana Baba Mad Bhakto Madhyaji Maman Maskru. He says, Love me. This is the end of all knowledge. Become my devotee. Always think of me. Love me. Bhakti. He says, This is the end of knowledge. In love, as I said earlier, there's a kind of knowledge that's that's there, it's automatic. And it's essential. There's no extra baggage type information type knowledge that you're carrying around, it's really burdening you. You know what to do in love, and you do it. So knowledge is is in one sense subordinate to love, in that the highest knowledge, that love is the highest knowledge. I appreciate your uh, taking the time. Again, I apologize for coming a little late, but it was mom's fault, not mine. (laughs) So, let we stop here. I think you must have prepared some dinner for everyone, right? Yeah. Some grace for everyone? Yeah. Okay, thank you again. Hare Krishna.